Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.podomatic.com. Hello to everybody all around the world. This is Luke from Luke's English Podcast and you're listening to Luke's English Podcast, which shouldn't really be a surprise because I expect that you downloaded it and pressed the play button on your machine of whichever machine you're using. Welcome to Luke's English Podcast. This is the podcast in which you can hear natural British English as it really is spoken by a person. That person in this case is me. Welcome to the show. This one is all about computer games or video games. Um, And we'll be looking at games from the early days of uh, Space Invaders and Pac-Man all the way up to the games industry of today, which in fact is worth more than the movie industry globally, worth more than the music industry, worth more than the DVD industry, and worth more than the book industry. That's right, the computer games media industry is one of the biggest entertainment... In fact, I think it may be the biggest entertainment industry that we have in the world today. But what do people really think of games? Um, It seems that many people believe that computer games are just um, something that is used or um, done by kind of geeky teenage uh, boys with no friends who never go outside, never see the sun and just spend all of their time indoors um, kind of playing games, maybe learning how to become a murderer or something like that. Is that what you think of games or um, do you have a different opinion? I wonder. Um, So... um, Let's see. I'm going to be talking to you about the kind of history of games uh, at the beginning. And I'll give my own kind of personal history of computer games. And then after that, I'm going to go on to kind of discuss a few different questions that relate to to gaming. Okay, Um, let's see. So what do you think? Are they for just sad teenage boys or are they kind of something that everybody uh, can play? Well, let me give you a couple of facts. Okay, so it's fact time. Um, I did a bit of research on the Internet. I found a few facts about the video games industry. Now, these facts relate to to America. America. So not to the whole world, but I, I managed to find some information about uh, America in particular. Maybe we can use America as a kind of benchmark for um, the way uh, games are consumed all over the world. Maybe not. Who knows? Maybe in your country you deal with computer games in a completely different way. But generally speaking, I think that uh, the trends in America are quite reflective of trends in the rest of the world, more or less, when it comes to computer games anyway. Um, so the average age of a computer gamer or a games player uh, in America is 30 years old. That's right, 30. So not, uh, not a child, not a teenager, but 30 years old. In fact, most gamers are in their 30s, um, surprisingly enough. And are they just boys um, or do some girls play as well? Well, according to the statistics which I found, um, just less than half of the gamers in the US are women. So it's it's about 49% women, 51% men. Now, this 
data um, includes um, not just games played on consoles, for example, the PlayStation 3, the Nintendo Wii, or the Xbox 360. So it's not just games played on on um, dedicated games machines, but also games that are played on home computers, uh, even games uh, that people play on their tablets or their mobile phones, for example, Angry Birds or Tetris or something like that. There's a massive variety of games now. Um, and they come in all shapes and sizes. Um, so I expect there are many women out there who maybe don't play games in the kind of obsessive way that you might uh, imagine sort of teenage boys would play on their PlayStation. But nevertheless, they're still playing games on their smartphones and stuff like that. Um, I know personally, uh, from my own experience, that my girlfriend got completely addicted to uh, Angry Birds and she got completely addicted to Fruit Ninja on her iPhone. Uh, my mum and dad, uh, they got addicted to Tetris when uh, we had uh, a Game Boy in the house. Um, so, you know, you might be surprised. It's not just for teenage boys who have no friends. It's also used by many people of many different ages, different genders, and so on. Um, okay, in fact... Um, Nowadays, games are used a lot in education as well. Many people even consider them to be the future of entertainment and possibly the future of social networking and, and communication. Games uh, have, have, still have a long way to go before they can rival kind of art forms like film um, or, or, or novels in the way that they can tell stories. But they have so much potential um, in terms of the way that they are interactive uh, their ability to tell a story, or the ways that they can be used to connect people online. So we know that games are developing fast. I wonder what's going to happen with games in the future. I've got some questions at this point. Before I start telling you my own personal history of computer games, um, I've got a few questions, uh, which I will hopefully deal with in the second half of this episode. But please send me uh, your responses to these questions. I'm very interested in your opinions. Um, so please join in the debate. Here are some questions. First of all, what do you think of computer games? Do you love them or hate them? Do you think they're sad or do you think they're cool? Uh, do you like all games or do you just like some specific ones? Do you play games um, or do you avoid them as much as possible? Do you think that they're a good use of your time or do you think they're just a total waste of time? Are they unhealthy and bad for us? Or do they help us to develop particular skills or even keep us fit? Are they um, a good way to connect with people or are they just basically antisocial things to do? Um, are computer games just a bit of fun or are they somehow immoral, unethical and kind of dangerous? Um, can computer games be the future of entertainment? Will they replace film or ultimately are they... Uh, unable to um, become works of art in the same way that we we imagine theatre, um, movies or books to be works of art. Join the debate. Let me know what you think. Write your comments under this episode uh, on the w either website. You can go to www.podomatic.com. 
uh, no, www.teacherluke.podomatic.com or uh, teacherluke.wordpress.com. Find this particular episode on those web pages and just add your comments below. I'm very interested to see what you think. Um, so let me now just give you my own kind of personal history of, of games. Um, let's see. Well, I was born in 1977 and computer games had been around for quite a while already when I arrived. Um, in fact, really, the, the sort of first big success in computer games was uh, uh, in 1972. It was released by a company called Atari, um, who aren't really around so much anymore, but Atari are kind of the original old-school retro computer games maker, you could say, and they came out of America. And um, in 1972, they came up with a, a, a very early computer game concept. Do you know what it what it's called, I wonder. Well, it was called Pong, P-O-N-G, Pong. And it was very basic, very, very simple. Um, and essentially, it was a kind of table tennis or tennis simulator. And you've probably seen it. You might have even played it. Uh, you might have seen it on TV or, or even played it yourself on a computer of some kind, maybe on some kind of emulator on your PC, maybe. But Pong basically involved... Um, Two little white lines on either on, on the two sides of the screen, which could be controlled to move up or down, and then um, there would be a, a little white ball, which was basically just a tiny square made of probably about four pixels, and this square would bounce between the two white lines. So the white lines represented your bats, like your table tennis bats or your tennis rackets, and you would bounce this white ball between the two. So player one would be the line on the left, player two would be the line on the right, and bop, beep, bop, beep, bop, beep. You'd just sort of hit this ball to each other, and if you missed, then you lost a point. That was it. It's very basic, but somehow very addictive. And um, there was something satisfying about the analogue sounds that uh, you got from this game, this bop, beep, it was it was actually very addictive. It started out as a as an arcade machine, um, and what's an arcade machine? Well, um, an arcade or a computer games arcade is a place like a room, maybe in a cafe or a room in some public area, uh, where you go in and inside there are lots of games machines, coin operated games machines, and you can go in there and kind of put your money in and start playing a game. Now, originally, games arcades would have been uh, filled with kind of mechanical games of some kind, like pinball, for example, pinball being the, the most famous or most popular kind of mechanical game. And it wasn't until the sort of early 70s that electronic games, um, computer games were introduced. And so you would um, maybe 1972, 1973, probably in America, you might have gone into a computer games arcade to play some pinball or you might have gone into a games arcade to play some pinball and you might have noticed there a wooden cabinet with a TV screen um, and it might have been a game of Pong. And uh, this game was so popular, so successful, it made so much money that um, Atari decided that they would try and develop a game of Pong um, or a computer games machine that could be used at home. And so they released the very first games console, um, which um, had a sort of space in the top where you could insert cartridges. And the cartridges would be basically different games. For example, um, Pong or... Um, there are various others as well. Pong is the most famous one from that era. Um, and uh, 
So that was the very first games console. A console is uh, a machine which is dedicated really to playing computer games. And nowadays we think of the PlayStation 3 or the, the Xbox 360 as examples of games consoles. And it was kind of a revolution in home entertainment that you could plug this thing into your TV and then bingo, you've got like a basic sort of racing simulator or a basic tennis simulator and uh, it was very very popular um then of course you got games like space invaders from japan and that was another big um success in the computer games arcades um let's see when did i get my first game or when did i first experience playing games i think it was probably when i was about must have been about five or six years old i think maybe even earlier my dad one day brought home a um a kind of pong copy i don't think it was an original pong machine um or an original atari console but he brought home some kind of pong copy of some kind that he borrowed from a friend i think and he plugged it into the tv and then we started playing pong and uh, we used to have really good fun playing pong i remember there were these kind of um uh, dials or paddles that we'd use to control the uh, the line going up and down. Great fun. I think we only had it for a couple of weeks before we had to give it back. The next um, next game that I got was after my dad had been to Hong Kong on business. He went to Hong Kong for for like a business trip, and while he was there, he picked up a couple of handheld games for my brother and me handheld means that they're just very small machines just small enough to fit in your hand um the most famous handheld machine that we know now of course is the the game boy maybe the 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 psp the playstation handheld console but um in those days we didn't have the game boy we 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 had like just small um, games which only had one game in them so you couldn't sort of change the 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 cartridges in the back it was just one game and uh, my brother was given a kind of yellow plastic um, thing that looked a bit like a spaceship but in fact it was um, a game called Galactic Invaders now this was a kind of cheap copy of Space Invaders but it was uh, it was great and my brother quickly became kind of addicted to this and he was very good at it I remember uh, basically in this game you had three um, columns and uh, at the bottom you had a spaceship and the spaceship could move between the three columns and shoot lasers up at uh, alien spaceships which were slowly coming down and you had to try and shoot them all before they got to your spaceship and destroyed you, killed you. Uh, At the top of the screen you would see sometimes UFOs flying across and the UFOs made a kind of memorable noise. I remember it was was like a kind of noise. Um, and uh, in fact, the sound effects were pretty cool on this game. There's kind of like bat, 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 beep, bat, 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 that kind of thing. I thought that was cool when I was a kid. I don't know. Maybe my parents found it incredibly annoying. They didn't seem to. They didn't seem to mind really. Uh, they were probably happy that we were just sitting down and not sort of destroying the living room. Um, but it was uh, it was good fun that game. And I was given a very early Nintendo game and watch thing a game and watch handheld games device now game and watch was what nintendo uh was producing before they came out with their you know their game consoles uh and the game boy game and watch was essentially a kind of um it was like a clock or an alarm clock so it was like a little display about the size of a credit card 
and um, it, it would tell you the time. You could set an alarm, so it, it would wake you up in the morning, and it had a little sort of um, arm that would come out at the back and you could prop it up on your bedside table. It would, it would work like an alarm clock. But also it had a game in it. So it's a kind of a combination between a bedside alarm clock and a computer game. And the game was very basic. I mean, they later on they, re- they released things like Donkey Kong on it. But mine was one of the very early ones. And it, uh, it was a game called Parachute. And it, essentially in Parachute, what, um, what happened was... Um, uh, you controlled a little guy in a boat. And it was so simple that, if you can imagine, all you, you only had two buttons, left and right, and you could move this guy um, in the boat to the left and to the right. That's it. And you only had about four positions that the, the, the boat could go in. So it was just literally just moving this guy between these four positions. Now, in the sky, there was a little aeroplane which was dropping uh, guys... Uh, with parachutes and the guys in parachutes would slowly descend and they would land in one of the four positions um, at the beginning it's easy because they just come down one by one but then as you progress they come down more quickly and there's more of them so you've got to be very fast with your thumbs in order to catch these guys in parachutes because if you don't catch them they will land in the water and if they get if they land in the water that's right of course they get eaten by sharks um, and you get kind of a cool animation of when one of these guys lands in the water you see this little shark's fin coming through the water and then they get eaten by the shark um it was quite good fun um and uh, required quite a lot of skill and dexterity in your thumbs and timing in order to make sure that you catch all of these guys so that was the first game that we got um it wasn't until later on really that um let's see we my dad brought yeah it was again my dad brought home a, a, the very first um home computer that i'd ever seen so it wasn't just a games machine but it was actually a computer and it was called the sinclair zx spectrum um which was i think it had something like 64k of ram now ram means um what is it random assisted memory i think anyway ram is the memory that your computer needs in order to perform its basic tasks and functions all right so for example uh, most laptops or most computers these days have about two gigabytes of ram so that's all the memory space that they that the computer needs in order to kind of perform different tasks all at the same time the more ram you have the faster your computer can operate uh, and uh, the more tasks it can um, complete all at the same time so most computers now two gigabytes of ram or four gigabytes of ram this one that my dad brought home um, had 64k of RAM. Um, just to give you an idea of how much that is, um, one gigabyte is about one uh, million um, k. Okay, one million k. Um, so 64k. Um, you can imagine just how basic and how simple this machine was, but the Sinclair ZX Spectrum was a huge success in the UK. Um, it was very simple. You'd, again, you'd plug it into the back of your TV and you could um, you know, play games on it. You could also code things. You could write code so you could program your own games. It was a very basic little keyboard with blue rubber um, 
keys, which was kind of cool. Um, but um, they were also pretty unreliable and they would crash quite a lot. So my dad brought home a Sinclair ZX Spectrum and we, um, we played it for about two hours, I think, before it just died. It just crashed and it never worked again. So that was the first experience of a home computer that I ever had. Um, and it wasn't until later on, until I think I was about, I was about nine or ten years old, and my parents decided that they would buy an Amstrad CPC 6128. So that's, that was a similar kind of level to the Sinclair ZX Spectrum, but slightly more advanced. Um, I wouldn't say it was a next-generation computer, but it was better than the the, the Spectrum. Um, this one had 128K of RAM. Whoa! And um, you had to load programs or load computer games onto it using a tape player. So you'd connect the tape player to the computer, just a tape player, like a cassette player that you would use to listen to music, for example. You'd connect it through the headphone socket, and the, the games would be stored on cassettes. So these are, you know, those old cassettes that we used to use to listen to music on, on our Walkmans, for example. Same, same uh, hardware, um, but instead of having music on them, they would have computer games on them. So you'd put the cassette in the tape machine and rewind it and then get the computer ready. So you'd have to, like, type in the code to run the game. So you'd, like, load game enter and it would um it would go into like a ready mode and then you press play on the tape machine and the tape player would start playing the code would start playing the game directly into the computer and you can hear the sound of the code going in it was a kind of analog code which would then allow the computer to uh, run the game okay and the sound would be like it would kind of go do and that's the sound of the information actually going into the computer from this tape machine and very slowly the game would load and they would take about half an hour to load half an hour and probably about 50% of the time they wouldn't work there would be some interference something would go wrong and the game would crash while it was loading so um, it was always kind of exciting when a game would finally load um, so there would be this tense half an hour while the game was loading and you would like m- uh, make sure that you didn't touch the tape player or touch the computer at all because if you even breathed on the computer uh, the chances were that it would crash and the game wouldn't load so you'd have to wait half an hour and while it was loading you would get a title screen very slowly appearing line by line on your computer screen and the title screen would be some sort of picture to represent the game and uh, so while you're waiting for the game to load you could watch the title screen loading line by line and then the game would load and you'd be able to play it and you'd keep your fingers crossed that it didn't crash because if it crashed while you were playing it that's right you'd have to start again rewind the cassette reprogram the computer and uh, load the game again um the games were really basic like really simple really basic graphics but there were some really good... I have some really good memories of playing games with my brother. We spent quite a lot of time together in front of this computer playing all these very early games. Games like, um, let's see, games like uh, BMX Simulator. And BMX Simulator was kind of a top-down view. So you'd l- imagine you're looking directly down 
onto a BMX track. BMX is a kind of bicycle, you know, a bike that you would use to do tricks, a BMX bike, yeah? So a BMX simulator. So you'd look down on the the track and there were these little sort of very basic-looking blobs, like coloured blobs with a line at the top and and a line at the bottom to represent the wheels of the BMX. And you would tap one of the buttons to make the BMX go around and you turn with the left and right keys and that would that would be it. You just basically keep tapping and the BMX would like move around the track and you had to avoid uh, puddles of water. Uh, you'd have to kind of jump over things and stuff like that and, and it was a race. So it would be me versus my brother in a very dramatic BMX race and each track would be different so they'd be more difficult each time. Very, very basic, but really good fun. And I remember in BMX Simulator, you uh, you could have four players playing it at the same time, which was really cool. But um, because you had to use the keyboard to control the BMXs, um, everyone would have to crowd around the keyboard. So I remember that, that sometimes when our friends came over, there'd be like four of us all crowded around trying to... F- you know uh control our bmx's by touching different buttons on the keyboard um not very practical uh, but certainly a lot of fun um, james and i also used to program our own games on the amstrad um because there was no operating system in the computer it was just sort of basic i don't know how to describe it really no operating system you couldn't just click on a window to open something you had to actually type in the code you had to type the command directly in um, in order to launch um, a game or to ask the computer to do something so you had to learn a kind of basic uh, set of commands and we learned how to make simple games for example we learned how to make a racing game where you had to control a little car going through a valley Um, so we kind of made a valley a random um, valley made of I think it was number ones so lots of number ones all in a in a uh, in a would make a valley and you had to control a little car and move it uh, all the way through this valley and if it touched the sides game over you know uh, that was good fun so lots of very um lots of lovely memories of uh, playing games with my brother probably early on a sunday morning because in those days when we were kids we used to get up early we, we used to actually want to get up early in order to play the games that all changed of course when we became teenagers and for some reason staying in bed was the main priority but uh, in the early days we'd get up early on sunday mornings in order to play these games we didn't go to church no we would just play games instead that was our way of uh, i don't know uh, sort of uh, uh, sort of showing our faith in the world was to blow things up in a computer. Yeah. Um, after that, uh, let's see, after that... Now, there were other games and other bits of hardware out there, but there are just too many things for me to mention and too little time. So I'm just going to tell you my personal story and the, the machines which I uh, played myself. Okay. After that... The Nintendo Entertainment System arrived. Um, In fact, the Nintendo Entertainment System arrived a bit earlier, but I didn't get one until a little bit later. Um, When I was about... I must have been about 12 years old, maybe a bit older, and I had a paper round. Um, I was a paper boy. That meant that I rode a bicycle all over my local village with a big bag full of newspapers in it, and I would deliver newspapers to all the houses, right? So I had a job. 
And I saved all my money from the paper round and I used it to buy a Nintendo Entertainment System. That was the very first Nintendo home games console. And it was a huge success all over the world, the Nintendo, um, with probably their most famous game, which was Super Mario Brothers. Um, And, uh, you know, if you don't know who Mario is, then I don't know where you've been. Because um, famously, when just a couple of years after Super Mario Brothers was released during the mid-1980s, there was some survey done and it was discovered that um, more American kids were able to identify Super Mario than... uh, Uh, Mickey Mouse so he became more famous than Mickey Mouse basically Um, and uh, Super Mario Brothers was just a really great game just very very playable platform adventure Um, the basic concept is that um, Super Mario is uh, an Italian plumber I don't know why he was an Italian plumber but he was Um, and uh, well he used to kind of travel through these green pipes I suppose it was just a way for them to design the game. You know, they needed ways for Mario to move around between different levels. They decided that he would travel around through pipes. So he was a plumber. Don't ask me why he was Italian. I've no idea why that was. I think it may have been due to the fact that uh, they couldn't really render his hair very well because it would have looked strange that his hair wasn't moving while he was jumping up and down. So they gave him a hat. And they also gave him a moustache to just give him a sort of... Um, a particular feature on his face it just made it easier to design his face in simple graphics if he had like a a clearly distinguishable moustache I don't know I think that's part of the reason anyway he was an Italian plumber and he had a brother called Luigi so it was Mario and Luigi it's a Mario and uh, uh, Mario's girlfriend who I think was called Princess Peach I think he had two girlfriends I mean he's Mario's been around for a long time now. I think he's had several girlfriends. But the first one, I think, was called Princess Peach. Later on, he got Daisy as well. I don't know what the difference is between the two of them. Anyway, Princess Peach was his girlfriend. Um, so just this poor Italian plumber had a princess as a girlfriend. I don't know. You you work it out. Um, and uh, Princess Peach would always get kidnapped. She was constantly being kidnapped. Either she was kidnapped by... Um, uh, Donkey Kong, who is a kind of huge evil gorilla, not a pink one, mind you, just a normal coloured one. But Donkey Kong would kidnap uh, Princess Peach sometimes in other games. But in Super Mario Brothers, uh, Princess Peach was kidnapped by Bowser, who was a kind of huge green um, monster, uh, some sort of evil turtle, I think. Um, and uh, Bowser would kidnap Princess Peach. I don't know why he kidnapped her or what he planned to do with her once he kidnapped her. I don't really want to know, really, uh, exactly what happened to her. But basically, he would kidnap her and keep her in a castle, and then it was up to Mario to kind of find his way through um, these different worlds in order to finally get to Bowser's castle, defeat Bowser, and rescue the princess. It's a pretty basic kind of fairy tale like storyline. Um, So you control Mario and you have to run from left to right and you jump over various obstacles, make sure that you don't fall in holes and um, you can collect various different things that will help you on your journey. So when you start, Mario is, uh, well, he's kind of big, but if he gets hit by a a bad guy, uh, then he goes all small. 
do, do, do. He kind of makes that sound. The sound effects were really great in Super Mario Brothers and very memorable. So if he gets hit by a, a Cooper, Cooper is kind of an evil bad guy, then he would go, do, 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 and go all small. Um, but then if he gets hit again, he's, he's dead. And it goes, I don't know what the sound is when he dies. It goes something like, no, that's in Tetris. That's a Tetris sound effect. Anyway, um, so if you, get t- if, if you get touched by a turtle then you would die. Strange, strange logic you get in computer games. I don't know why, just if a turtle touches your, 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 your foot, that would cause you to die. Um, but this is Super Mario World, so the rules are different, ladies and gentlemen. The rules are different. Anyway, there were various little touches in this game which made it really uh, special. And the main thing is just the gameplay, the way that Mario responded to your, your commands the way he sort of moved around, the way he, he felt that he had a sense of weight. So when he jumped, uh, there was a s- sensation of him having an inertia or weight behind him. Also, there were various cool things like if he ate a mushroom, he would become big and strong, naturally. Again, I don't know why that is logical, that eating a mushroom makes you kind of super-powered. I don't know what kind of mushrooms Mario was eating, but anyway, there you go. Also, if he ate a flower, it gave him the, uh, the power to throw fireballs. Again, not real-world logic there. Um, and uh, so just really funny, a great sense of humour, a great sense of timing in the, the way the levels were designed, a, a genuine sense of challenge, and so it became an all-time classic and famous all over the world. And since then, we've had loads of different Mario games, um, including sort of Super Mario Kart, Super Mario Galaxy, um, all kinds of spin-off games from the Mario series. So I bought my Super Nintendo... Ent- I, I bought my Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES. Um, in Japan, it's called the Famicom. A classic games console with a very simple controller. The controller is the thing that you hold in your hands in order to play the game. And it was basically just a grey plastic box with a lid on it. And you would open the lid, slide in this big cartridge, and then click the cartridge down and turn it on. And then you get this kind of budding sound, which um, shows you that it's a Nintendo console. And uh, just really great fun. There were some really, really classic games, not just Super Mario Brothers, but loads of others. Um, and I played that for a while. Then my brother, in 1989, I think, managed to get a Game Boy. Um, I think he bought it from someone at school. So he got a Game Boy. And uh, this was Nintendo's first handheld games console. And it was really great. It was kind of a revolution because it was... Um, not just because of the way it was designed. It was very simple design, very appealing, very nice aesthetic, very simple sort of layout and everything. And the c- controls were just almost exactly the same as the controls for a Nintendo Entertainment System controller. Um, and you could put different cartridges in the back so you could play lots of different games. But the, really the, the, the main thing about the Game Boy it was, was that it just oozed charm. It was just a really charming piece of hardware because of the sound effects again when you turned it on it would go ba-ding! now that seems like a small detail but for some reason it's just very satisfying just the cute noises that this machine would make also the graphics were very simple it was just black and white and it was a two-bit machine so eight um the, the nes this the nintendo entertainment system was an eight-bit machine 
and that was basic. But the Game Boy was just a two-bit machine, so black and white, very simple sound effects. And yet, with all of these basic um, like limitations, Nintendo managed to produce some really classic games. Um, so it just shows you don't need amazing graphics. You don't need like high-quality HD TVs. All you need is a kind of inventive game designer, um, simple set of rules and and kind of addictive gameplay and you got all of this from the Game Boy's most famous game which was of course Tetris. Tetris has got kind of an interesting history because it was developed in Russia, it was developed in the Soviet Union before the Iron Curtain came down and so this is a Russian game or a Soviet made game and God knows how Nintendo managed to get the rights to uh, put it onto the Game Boy. But it was all... I mean, the 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 rights to this game were all mixed up with uh, the KGB. It's kind of an interesting story of, of espionage and computer games. That could be another podcast of its own, just the story of Tetris. I think it's a fascinating one. Um, and it's involved an American um, game publisher going into the Soviet Union um, in what must have been quite frightening um, times to be an American in the Soviet Union. And he went in and uh, he, he, he managed to find the guy who designed Tetris and eventually managed to get Tetris published in America and in the rest of the world. And then Nintendo got the rights to put it on the, the Game Boy. And the great thing about Tetris was that anyone could play it, really. It was very simple to understand the rules, but quite difficult to master the game. Um, You've probably played Tetris, um, and you probably know how it works. Basically, you have um, different uh, blocks, different shapes that fall down from above. And the shapes are all made of um, basically four pieces. Uh, You get a kind of square, an oblong, a little higgledy-piggledy shape. And so you've got about four or five different shapes and they fall down from above and as they fall you can rotate them by 90 degrees and the idea is to make them all fit in uh, to a line at the bottom and when they make a line uh, you get a point and the line disappears so on one hand you, you have to try and get as many points by scoring as many lines as you can and on the other hand you have to just make sure that the blocks don't all pile up until there's no space at the top of the screen. You probably know the game uh, yourself, but it was hugely addictive and uh, very popular all over the world and popular with people who didn't normally play games. For example, my mum and dad themselves got kind of addicted to Tetris. Now, they didn't really agree with computer games. They kind of they frowned on them, thought that they were possibly a waste of time, uh, maybe even harmful or something. They just didn't really like them. They thought they were kind of sad, you know, to just spend your time sitting there doing nothing except playing a game they thought that was sad they probably felt it was uh, not very good for 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 us um, but once they started playing tetris they got hooked and they couldn't put it down very addictive game and and you've probably experienced it yourself you could play tetris for hours on end without even realizing that the time had gone by um, and in fact, if you played Tetris for too long, you would experience Tetrisitis. Now, Tetrisitis is not a real uh, medical condition, but it's kind of uh, a nickname that my friends and I would use to describe the, the way that if you'd been playing Tetris for a while and then you closed your eyes and tried to go to sleep, you could still see Tetris blocks moving down uh, you know, in front of your eyes. So you play it so much that after, after a while you 
you keep seeing Tetris blocks wherever you look. So that's Tetrisitis. And, and in fact, that's kind of a common thing that you get if you play any computer game for a long time. Eventually, you, you start seeing the graphics wherever you go. Quite dangerous, I suppose. Um, I remember playing uh, Super Mario Kart, which is a driving game, with my friends at university for hours. And then um, leaving the living room in order to go to the toilet. And I as I was moving around the room, as I was moving around the house, I felt like I had to like keep turning or pushing my thumbs in order to turn the corners of the, the house just because I'd been so used to playing the game for such a long time. That just shows how engrossing and how kind of addictive and, um, and fun these games are that uh, uh, you just get completely sucked into them. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I wonder. I really do. Um, So after the Nintendo and after the Game Boy, uh, the next console that I got was the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, the SNES, or in Japan, the Super Famicom. And uh, this was great because uh, it was a lot more powerful than the NES, and the graphics were much better, and there was suddenly a huge range of new games that you could get for it. The control pad was different. It was more advanced. It had six buttons this time instead of just two. Uh, Four buttons on the main part that you controlled with your thumb, and then two shoulder buttons on the top, and that meant that the game designers had uh, many more options, many more possibilities, and as a result, you got lots of innovation in the uh, computer games which were released for the SNES. Okay, the SNES, that's the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. It also just looked cool. It was kind of like nicely rounded. It looked like it was out of the Star Wars universe in in some way. It was kind of grey plastic and it was kind of rounded. It just looked nice. And when you put the cartridge in the top, it made a satisfying clunk sound. You'd push the cartridge in and it would go clunk like that. And there was a big button in the middle to eject the cartridge and when you ejected it would pop out like a toaster like that so it was just a fun satisfying piece of equipment to use Um, and again i bought my own super nintendo entertainment system uh, using the money that i'd saved from my paper round Um, and i had a particular trick at christmas time for for getting tips as a paper boy and what i did was um I uh, I learned the names of all of the people on my paper round, all the customers. And so I bought lots of really cheap Christmas cards and uh, I wrote inside each card, dear, you know, whatever the customer's name was, dear Mr. Smith. Um, and then it said, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And I wrote, from your paper boy, Luke. And so what I did was on that particular paper round just before Christmas, I knocked on the door of every customer on my paper round and I wished them a happy Christmas and I gave them the card and the paper together. And of course, they then felt obliged to give me some kind of cash tip. And I made loads of money that day. I just made loads. I remember by the end of my paper round, my bag was full of coins and notes that people had given me as a tip. And a lot of people were happy to give me tips because in their opinion, I was a good paper boy. Maybe I should go back to doing that. Might be a good way to make some money for a change. And so let's see, I spent my money wisely uh, on a, a Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Now, my parents didn't really agree with computer games, um, despite the fact that they'd bought um, a computer some some years 
years before, but that's before they really realised what computer games were all about. At this point, they didn't really agree with games and they decided that they didn't want to buy me a Nintendo. So it was up to me to do it myself. So I used the money that I'd saved on my paper round and I went down to my local like um, technology shop, my local hardware shop, and I bought a Super Nintendo Entertainment System which was packaged with Street Fighter 2. Street Fighter 2 was just the best game uh, going at the time. I've talked a little bit about Street Fighter 2 before. Essentially, Street Fighter 2 is a fighting game, a beat-em-up. A beat-em-up is another word for a fighting game. And that's um, basically you choose your character and then um, your characters fight against each other. It's a pretty basic uh, concept. There are kind of power levels at the top of the screen for each character. And these are like uh, lines. And whenever you get punched... Your, your power level goes down a bit until eventually your power level reaches zero and you get knocked out, okay? Simple concept. Um, but uh, it's a lot more complicated than that because each character had their own backstory, they had their own fighting style, and they had all of their own special moves as well. Um, and so the key to the game was like learning the particular fighting style for each character, learning all their special moves and mastering them so you could just do the special moves uh, in an instant. Um, And also you would learn the best technique for fighting different characters. So, for example, one of the characters was um, an Indian guy called... I think his name is Dal Sim. That's it. And Dal Sim was a yoga practitioner. And so, of course, being a yoga practitioner, he could stretch his arms and legs. So the thing about uh, Dalsim was that he, you could use him to fight people from a distance because his legs and arms would stretch out. So you didn't need to be close to your opponent in order to hit him. So you could be kind of far away. So he was a good defensive player. Also, he was able to spit fire out of his mouth, naturally. Um, and when he did that, he would go, Yoga fire! Or yoga flame. And that was always fun to to make him go yoga flame like that. Just hearing him make that sound was always uh, good fun. So as Dalsim, you would kind of stand uh, away from your opponent and you would just go yoga flame, yoga flame, yoga fire, yoga fire, yoga flame like that. And uh, that's the best way to defeat someone using Dalsim. If you've never played the game, you're probably thinking that I've lost my mind, but um, I haven't. I really haven't. Um, the sound effects and the way the, the, the noises the characters made uh, and the way that they looked were all part of the really amazing charm of this game. Other characters were ones like Ken and, and Ryu, who were the principal characters in this game, and they had a kind of a, a sort of karate style, let's say, but their special move... Well, one of their special moves was to throw fireballs. So they kind of like summon up some special energy and then release it as a burning blue ball of plasma of some kind. And if that hit you, then it would take away a lot of energy from you. So that was one of their special moves. And whenever they did it, they would um, say a command. They would say, Haryuken! No, Hadouken! That's it. Hadouken! which is just what you what these characters say when they do a fireball. Hadouken! Hadouken! Like that. And um, they had another uh, move, which was the dragon punch, which was a kind of very dramatic uh, athletic uh, punch, which would involve flying upwards into the air with a raised fist. And uh, if 
uh, your dragon punch hit your opponent, it would take a lot of their energy away. So it was a very effective uh, um, move. Plus, also, the dragon punch would could inflict multiple hits. So if you start low and you're close enough to the uh, your if you're close enough to your opponent, then the dragon punch could inflict like three or four, maybe five hits on your opponent. So it was very satisfying and dramatic when it happened, and the character would go Haryuken like that, and then <laughs> with a, a number of like different hits, a combination of of punches. Now, I can't really describe it. I can't do it justice. You'd have to play it or experience it just to see the graphics, the animation of this uh, of these moves, the sound effects, and um just the overall experience was like very dramatic and very exciting. These characters were so well drawn, so well rendered. Um they were like superheroes. Um, the the way that they looked on screen, they were like these big, tough guys, sort of rippling muscles. Um, they were like Greek gods. That's probably the the, the best analogy that I can make. Um, if you go to Rome and you see statues of uh, these incredible kind of Greek gods, they look amazing. They look uh, um, uh, superhuman. Um, they're incredible. You know, like from uh, Michelangelo's pictures, uh, from his paintings, you see these images of people in the sky, these muscle, these muscly, incredibly um, inspiring characters flying through the sky. Well, that's what the characters from Street Fighter 2 are like for me. Hadouken! Um, Haruken! Now, I always used to think that when the, uh, the characters from Street Fighter 2 said those things, Hadouken! Haruken! I thought they were saying, hello, Ken. Hello, Ken. How are you, Ken? In like, as if Ken and Ryu were having a conversation. Hello, Ken. Hello. How are you, Ken? I'm fine, Ryu. How are the wife and kids, Ken? That's what I always used to think they were saying. But um, when I read the instruction manual, no, they were just speaking Japanese. Um, yeah, so Street Fighter 2 is just such a great game. Now, uh, after the Nintendo's... Um, I mean, there were other games consoles like the Sega uh, Mega Drive, Sega Genesis and so on. But I never used to play Sega because I was uh, I was dedicated to Nintendo. So I used to just sort of hate Sega. I shouldn't have done because they they had some great games as well. But then after that, after Nintendo's glory days, um, the next big thing, the next generation of consoles was the PlayStation, the Sony PlayStation. Um, and that was such a massive success. And one, one of the things that they managed to do uh, with the PlayStation was aim their, their, um, their marketing at older gamers. Because by this time, the people who started playing games when they were children were grown up. They were probably in their 20s or teenage years. And um, so they expected more adult type games rather than like little um, Italian plumbers uh, chasing after turtles. They wanted more adult uh, themes, you know. And so the Sony PlayStation released lots of games that were for more grown-up people, including sort of um, games like Metal Gear Solid or the Tekken fighting series. Um, And that was a huge success. Also, what Sony managed to do with the um, PlayStation was that they made it into a... um, um, like a, a CD player, basically. So not only could you play your games on it, you could also play CDs and listen to your music on the PlayStation. So that was kind of a big step forward. It started to become um, an essential um, 
kind of an essential piece of technology that you'd have in your home. And then later on, the, the PlayStation 2 was able to play DVDs. So essentially what Sony started to do was to combine uh, the gaming experience with the home entertainment experience in general so you would have one machine that could play your games and play your dvds and so you know millions of of living rooms all over the world had their tv and their playstation 2 uh, underneath it um, and then the latest uh, playstation console is the playstation 3 uh, which now connects to the internet and um, can play blu-ray discs so you can watch hd movies on it you can even surf the internet, you can watch YouTube, you can watch uh, films from Netflix online, and you can also play all your games with incredibly uh, detailed graphics, amazing quality sound. And there's just too much for me to go into, to be honest. There really is. Um, and, you know, now we've, 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 we've also got the Nintendo Wii, um, which is uh, strangely named, because, you know, a Wii is something you do in the toilet normally but not anymore now that you can you can have a wii in your living room now thanks to nintendo uh, the wii is very popular and kind of brought nintendo back um and basically the thing about the wii is that you can um it's got motion sensors so the control pads allow you to kind of move your body and um your body becomes the controller as it were. So the way you move your body or swing the, the, uh, the control pads around affects what happens on the screen. So this is a huge uh, step, um, a huge sort of um, change, a huge innovation for Nintendo. And again, it meant that anyone could play it because you could suddenly start doing fitness games. You could play golf in front of your TV and you just sort of replicate the action from the real world but holding a control pad in your hand. So you just swing your arms and the, uh, the motion sensor in the controller knows what your body is doing and it replicates it on the screen. Wow, amazing. As a result, loads of girls started playing uh, Wii and also parents and things, um, especially with the idea that it was physically good for you, that doing all that physical move- movement somehow made you fit. It also allowed uh, people all over the world to smash their TVs and hit their brothers and sisters in the face because you'd get so involved in swinging this controller around in front of the TV that sometimes it would slip out of your hand and fly into the TV. And there were lots of videos on YouTube of people destroying their television sets because they're playing tennis or something in the living room and they drop the controller and it either flies into the TV or smashes through a window or even hits their little sister in the face or something like that. So, so in, the, in the early days of the Wii, um, there were lots of accidents um, until Nintendo decided that you have to, you had to wear a, a, a strap around your wrist, so that um, you know if you drop the controller while you're playing it, it's your fault. It's not Nintendo's fault because they told you to wear the strap. Um, there were loads of other games as well between the PlayStation One and the PlayStation Three or the Wii, um, but I just don't have time to go into them now. I really don't. Uh, you just have to take my word for it. I imagine that. Some of you out there are big fans of computer games. If you are, why don't you write about which games you loved? Write your comments under this podcast. If you're not a computer games fan, maybe you hate games. Maybe you think that they are the work of the devil himself. Then please express your opinion by uh, writing a comment below this podcast. So um, 
let's see what about some of those questions um do you play games or do you avoid them? Let, let us know what you think. Do you think games are a good use of your time or are they a total waste of time? Well, I've never really managed to um, work that one out. Um, I mean, when I was at university, I had a PlayStation 1 and a Nintendo 64, right? So um, that was back in the late 1990s. And um, let's see, I probably shouldn't have spent so much time playing games with my friends. Uh, I lived in a house with nine people and a lot of the time we would be in the living room playing games against each other so we had a game called GoldenEye which was a kind of James Bond game and it basically allowed you to run around in in, in rooms um, as different characters from the James Bond movies uh, trying to kill each other um, and uh, that was it's surprisingly good fun and we, we spent a lot of time murdering each other in virtual reality um, now you might think, Luke, why did you why did you waste so much time at university doing that? Why didn't you go out and do other things? Why didn't you, for example, join the student union radio um, and become a DJ? Why didn't you meet more women at university, for example? Why didn't you study harder and um, get an even better degree? Well, actually, I managed to do my studies and I got a fairly good degree. But I must admit, I did spend probably a bit too much time playing GoldenEye with my friends. But having said that, they were just some of the best uh, times of my life. I know that sounds really sad because I've, I've done lots of things. You know, I've traveled to different parts of the world. I've had amazing experiences and things like that. But nevertheless, there's something just very simple and fun and enjoyable about playing some games with your friends in your own living room. I mean, it's... You know, traveling around the world is great, um, and it's that's an amazing experience. Um, but staying at home with your friends, that's just good old fashioned fun. So, you know, maybe it's a waste of time because ultimately playing games doesn't allow you to achieve anything, it's just fun in itself. Um, um, yeah. Yeah, so let me know what you think. These days, I try not to play games too much because if I start playing a game, after a while, I start feeling guilty. I can't really enjoy it anymore because I know that uh, I should really be using that time to do something either productive or just something very important like organising my finances or planning, um, you know, planning a romantic dinner with my girlfriend or um, writing an email to my uncle and aunt or... Um, or even just uh, planning and preparing episodes of Luke's English Podcast, or even just working out how the hell I'm ever going to make some money from doing this. Those are all things that I probably should be doing rather than playing, you know, Red Dead Redemption. Uh, although that is such a fun game. Red Dead Redemption is a game where you are a cowboy in the Wild West, and you ride round on a horse... Um, and you, it's just like a big uh, Sergio Leone Western, except you're actually in it. You're in the game. So, yeah, I'm, I'm got, I've got sort of... Um, I'm in two minds about computer games. On one hand, they're just great fun. They're really exciting and exhilarating. They can be a great way to spend time with your friends. But also, I feel like that you don't achieve anything by playing them. And so you've got to, you know... Um, You've got to be careful. Don't play them too much because, uh, you know, you're just wasting time that could be spent doing things much more important or productive. Um, 
let's see, are they unhealthy or bad for us? Um, I wonder, I mean, it is a bit strange that so many games um, focus uh, the, the action on sort of murder and often very violent, very gruesome murder. Not all games involve shooting people in the head, of course. There are lots of very wholesome games. For example, there are farming simulators, games where you can, you know, learn how to um, uh, bring up a dog successfully or, or uh, games that involve taking photographs of, um, of rare animals. Um, but there are also a hell of a lot of games that involve um, sort of shooting people in the head or blowing people up and stuff like that. Um, I mean, for example, a game like Grand Theft Auto um, is, is generally um, considered to be great because it gives you lots of freedom. But as far as I can tell... It, it, okay, it does give you some freedom, but most of that freedom is is uh, is in allowing you to, um, for example, blow up a police car while driving a motorbike off a bridge. You know, so it's not like it gives you that much freedom. You can't um, you, if you're walking down the street. There are certain things you can do and certain things you can't do. So, for example, you can mug someone, you can shoot someone, uh, but you can't just um, give a bunch of flowers to someone for example so the game really gives you the idea that it's free it's totally open but in fact it it leads you towards certain things and that those things are usually pretty awful hideous crimes that if you committed them in the real world uh, you could either be put in prison for life or sentenced to death so it's a bit strange that why is it that computer games focus so much on bloody violence um is that because essentially what we really want to do uh, there's something inside us that wants us to commit violent crime maybe we all really would love to go outside and blow things up but obviously we can't because we know that that's just impossible it's not allowed so maybe maybe it's unhealthy for us maybe it encourages us to act like that in the real world but i don't really think so because i think that I don't think there is more murder or more killing now in the world than there was before computer games arrived. I mean, I'm sure that the world was a lot more savage, a lot more brutal um, hundreds of years ago uh, before even cons- anyone even considered the idea of computer games. Um, obviously, in America, they have a lot of high school shootings and things, but I think that's more complicated than just it being the result of of games. I think it's related to their gun laws and all sorts of other things. In the rest of the world, I don't think it's fair to say that uh, there are more killings. Consider the the number of people who play games. um, You'd expect, if, if it was true that games caused people to copy the violence in the real world, um, then we would surely see way, way more of that kind of violence than we do. Because according to the statistics, millions of people all over the world play games like Grand Theft Auto, which involve shooting policemen. And yet the number of police shootings, I don't think is significantly increased since the release of that game. So I don't think it's as simple as that. Um, Nevertheless, I think there is something strange about the fact that so many games involve that kind of violence. But maybe it's cathartic. By cathartic, I mean it allows you to sort of uh, release um, tension or release aggression uh, that you can't release in the real world by kind of doing it in in virtual reality. 
But there's something, again, there's something weird about the fact that games are becoming more and more advanced. So the graphics are becoming more and more um, high definition. So the the kind of violence is much more realistic. Um, and um, also artificial intelligence is developing all the time. So we're kind of moving towards a, uh, it seems we're moving towards a, a place where computer games will, as realistically as as is possible, replicate the experience of of killing someone. So, at what point will that become just genuinely immoral? Like, when is it? When will artificial intelligence become so advanced and the graphics are so advanced that killing someone in a game is really, really similar to killing someone in the real world? And that kind of opens up all sorts of questions which have already been dealt with in films like Blade Runner, uh, which question the idea of uh, whether when artificial intelligence reaches a certain point, whether there is any any real difference between um, an artificial person and a real person, when essentially they act and feel the same. Um, when, when does artificial intelligence become uh, real? Do you know what I mean? I'm not explaining it very well. Um, but in Blade Runner, that's that's basically what Blade Runner is all about, if you've ever seen that film. Um, are games antisocial or do they connect people? Well, um, the, the kind of typical stereotype image of a computer games player is that they're sitting in a darkened room on their own without any friends, with no sunlight. But in fact, most of the time, games are played with, with other people either when you have your friends with you in the same room or when you're kind of playing with people online. So it's not really antisocial. It's just a different kind of socialising. Online is a bit... I guess it's a bit weird online because often um, what happens is people just abuse each other over the internet because there's that sense of anonymity. Um, But uh, also it, it allows people to develop genuine kinds of teamwork Often the the games that people play online together involve working in a team. And so, you know, it allows people to develop very refined sense of teamwork skills. Um, And together, when you play with your friends, it's one of the the most fun ways to socialise. And it's not really that much different to playing a board game. You know, a board game like um, Drafts or Monopoly or something like that. It's not really that different. Also, many people say that games allow people to develop kind of uh, quick reflexes and basic motor skills and decision-making skills. Um, They're not exactly analytic. I don't know. Are they analytical decision-making skills? Uh, For example, do they involve making really strategic decisions? Perhaps in some cases they do. It depends on what kind of game you're playing. But many games allow you to develop your own kind of strategy um, and allow you to analyse the situation before making decisions. Other games are all just about your reflexes, so immediate kind of motor skills. So uh, games are not mindless, not by any means. Um, Yes, so uh, can games become the future of entertainment? That's another question. Well, um, people have been talking about games becoming like interactive movies for a long time, but I don't think they're there yet for a number of reasons. One of those is that in games, it seems that uh, the acting and the storylines are always like really, really poor. They're, They're on a similar level to your basic kind of Hollywood B movie. 
So I've never played a game that's made me cry. I've never... I find it... It's very rare that games um, create an emotional feeling inside me. Normally, it's some sort of visceral feeling, like excitement or fear, maybe. Some games are frightening, like horror films. But I've, I've very rarely experienced genuine emotion, uh, sadness... Um, I've never cried playing a game, except maybe when I played The Legend of Zelda. For some reason, that was a very emotional experience. But maybe because it was just so long. Maybe I, I felt emotional at the end just because I'd been up all night and I hadn't slept. Or, or I just felt emotional because I suddenly realised just how much of my life I'd wasted playing the game. So I don't think games really allow... They don't really um, elicit emotions in the same way that watching um, actors um, and watching the subtle ways in which actors' faces can convey feelings. Um, I mean, movies really can be like fine art, but I haven't yet reached, uh, I haven't yet experienced a game that's like fine art. Sure, some of them are aesthetic, they're beautiful, some games, um, but they rarely. Um, make me feel um, emotional and usually the acting in games is is appalling you get these cut scenes in which the storyline moves on and they're just like awful acting uh the as i've said the storylines are predictable and dull uh full of cliches um so sorry computer games have got a long way to go before they can reach the same kind of level of emotional complexity that you get from a, a film um so keep going though games keep going i want you to keep innovating because who knows eventually we might find one game that is a genuine work of art but as they as they are now at best they're like exploitative hollywood b movies horror movies westerns that kind of thing um, I haven't found one that's really moving yet, but maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong because I haven't played all the games by any means. And uh, so, if you've played a game that genuinely moved you or that you found emotional, then uh, again, let me know. Write your comment under this episode of the podcast. I'm very interested to hear from you. I think that's pretty much it from this episode. Um, and uh, I, you know, I sincerely hope that uh, if you're not a fan of games, I hope that you haven't found this to be too dull and boring. But you know, maybe if you're not a fan of games, you might have learned a thing or two just from listening to me telling you my own sort of personal story of uh, uh, of my game playing experiences. Who knows? Um, Leave your comments below the podcast. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Luke's English Podcast. Visit the webpage, uh, either one. Uh, teacherluke.podomatic.com or teacherluke.wordpress.com visit one of those because you should find some notes there um, hopefully I'm going to write some bits of uh, vocabulary um, and some other things that you can use possibly to pick up some of the language that I've used in this episode um, if you have any questions for example if you heard me say certain things um, just uh, you know pose those questions in the comments section uh, and I'll be able to get back to you there um, don't forget, if you like, you can leave. Uh, you can give me a donation. Just click the button that says donate on the website. Uh, I would appreciate it very much. Your donations keep uh, this podcast alive and allow me to keep doing it. Um, so I appreciate even the smallest donation. 
you can choose how much you give uh, from $1 to $1 billion. It's up to you. I'm sure that you won't uh, give me $1 billion, but who knows? Maybe there's some kind of multi-millionaire kind of criminal gangster who, um, for some reason, decides the best way to invest his money would be to give it to me. Highly unlikely, but you never know. Um, if I did get a billion dollars, I think I would make my own computer game. It would be called Luke's English Game, and it would involve kind of um, going to a language school. Um, and, you know, you have choices. You can either learn English or you can kind of, uh, I don't know, blow the, blow the school up. I don't know. I don't recommend blowing a school up, by the way, only in the form of a computer game. Because if it's in a computer game, that's all right. You can do what the hell you want. In the real world, though, please, you know, comply with all of the laws and regulations which uh, prevent horrendous things like uh, uh, school being blown up. Obviously, you should just have your own sense of morality, which tells you not to do those things, not just the laws of the land, but your own sort of um, inherent sense of uh, uh, ethics um, right that's the end of the episode thanks very much again for listening and have a fantastic day or have a fantastic night or whatever it is whatever time it is um, thanks a lot bye 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 thanks again for listening to Luke's English Podcast for more information visit teacherluke.wordpress.com Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar, and pronunciation teaching from me, and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.